take out your Bibles and open them up to Second Chronicles, chapter 21. Second Chronicles, chapter 21. Continuing our, our study through the, the, the children of Israel, but with an emphasis, with a look, very close look at the southern tribes of Judah as we've gotten to this, this point now. Um, we've talked about this. It's, it's, it is important backdrop, and I think a little bit even as we're setting the stage a little bit for this evening, that more than most, most believe that the author of First and Second Chronicles is Ezra, we do know that it is written after the captivity when the, the, the tribes are taken off into captivity and after they have then returned. So that's why a lot of people believe it's Ezra. And writing then to the tribes, the southern tribes, because the northern tribes have been dispersed. Um, they, they, they can't trace their heritage anymore. And it's the southern tribes now through with time of Ezra and Nehemiah that are then coming back, rebuilding the temple and the wall in Jerusalem that the letters, the letter is written to, or the, the chronicles are written to. And that is important again, because it is, it is a history lesson that they, that they were all familiar with through story and even through reading, but here it is in writing it again for them that they can go to and they can learn from and that, that is reminding them of, of the holiness of their God and all that God did for them, but also the consequences for decisions that they make to go, again, go away from God for sin in their life. And last time we were looking at, and I have to admit, I, I really enjoyed talking about the life of Jehoshaphat and uh, a godly man who followed after the Lord. And th today, even studying and preparing, I'm like, I remember last time, I just couldn't wait to get here and talk about that. And tonight it's kind of like, oh, all right. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's, it's the word of God, I know. And there's, there's lessons that we can learn from this. And I, I, I pray that we can glean some great things about that. But we're going to see that things quickly turn after Jehoshaphat passes away. But it's important, one thing, as we just look back, because though Jehoshaphat, for the majority of his life, again, following after the Lord, never went after idols. But if you were here last time, there, was, there were a couple of marks on his record, on his life, and they had to deal with in the area of compromise, where he would, he, he, knew that he was not supposed to associate, I mean, that, that's clear in God's word, with ungodly people, yet he made an alliance with the northern king, the king of Israel at the time, who was Ahab, wife Jezebel, at this point, the most wicked, the most wicked king and queen that the, that the tribe of Israel had known. And the, we talked about this in chapter 18, that it's, it tells us that he married his son, Jehoram, off to the daughter of, of uh, Ahab and Jezebel. That's Athaliah. And not only coming together to fight a battle together, but intermarrying there. And when we think of that and, and we look at those types of things, I think all too often the question that, that people ask when they're looking at an area of compromise and they can say, well, you know, it's not a big thing. It's not a major thing. And then the question might come along, well, what's, what's the worst thing that could happen? 
And guys, that is the absolute wrong attitude and wrong question to ever ask <laughs> when it comes to anything that has to deal with, with compromise. It never should be what's the worst thing that happened. It should always be what is the right thing to do, period. Always. And we don't know that that's what Jehoshaphat was thinking, but I guarantee you he had no idea how bad it could be or we'd have never gone down this road. He marries, again, his son off with Ahab's daughter. And I just want to read this. Um, in, in Nehemiah, again, this is long into the future now. Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah writing, it says, verse 23, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak in the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. That sounds a little little extreme, doesn't it? <laughs> can't, I can't imagine that we'd get away with that today as far as church discipline goes. <laughs> but Nehemiah had reached this point again, because remember, this is the, these people should know better already, right? He goes on to say, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him, even him, to sin. Giving that example again, that even Solomon fell in this way, knew that he shouldn't do it, married these foreign women, and they were the ones who took him away into idolatry. I say all of that again just to kind of set this up because we're going to see now Jehoshaphat, chapter 21, slept with his fathers. He passes away and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, became king in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jahiel, Zechariah, Azarihu, Michael, and Shephathiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father, Jehoshaphat, gave them many gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So when, when Jehoshaphat realizes he's about ready to pass away, he's about ready to pass off the scene, he has seven sons, six of them he sets up in fortified cities, silver, gold, all of this stuff, and sets up his, his oldest son, Jehoram, as king in his place in in. Jerusalem. That was common. That was, you know, not an abnormal thing to do. But again, to kind of spread it all out, all the sons get a little something, but there's no mistake about it. The oldest son, Jehoram, is king. Verse four. Now, when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel to the north, just as the house of Ahab did note, for Ahab's daughter was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to see as we move through that his wife is a very influential person in his life. 
and she will remain so even after he passes on, influential to her son, and so forth as she moves forward. But a wicked, wicked woman taking after her father and her mother. And again, Jehoshaphat might have thought, you know, hey, well, we'll bring her into the family and we'll make her, we'll, we'll make her good. You know, we're, we're, we're good. We follow the Lord down here. Yeah, I know her dad and mom follow the Baals and, and all of these false gods. But if we bring her in, we'll be able to have a positive influence on her. Problem is, that's not what takes place, obviously. The first counsel he takes is with himself. Verse four, he made himself secure convincing himself that this is how things got to go down. I got to make myself secure. Obviously, when we're talking about kings, but guys, here's an application that for, for every single one of us to understand, God is in control. God is the sovereign king of the universe. Daniel 2.21 says, God removes kings and establishes them. God is the one who does that. He does not have to worry about establishing himself. God is the one who establishes kings and removes them. Romans 13, 1, no authority except from God. And those that exist are established by God, those that are in authority. God is the one in control. He's thinking, I got to get this all taken care of. I have to hold on to this. And the problem with establishing yourself is you feel the need to protect yourself, to secure yourself, to make sure that nothing else can touch that. Instead of working with his brothers, who if we look down real quickly at verse 13, it tells us at the end of the verse, you killed your own brothers, your own family, who were better than you. These, these brothers that were his, they were better than him. And we don't know what that better means, but more, more than likely probably means they were smarter, they were more talented, they may, you know, maybe had certain gifts and qualities that he didn't have. And instead of utilizing those qualities to make him a better king, to be able to rule the people more effectively, he was threatened by that. He felt that he needed to eliminate the threat Instead of embracing the gifts and qualities that they had, trusting the fact that God's the one who put him as king, and as long as he's there, as long as God would have him there, and there is a lesson to learn in that, because regardless of how we might feel about our position right now, we have to be careful and always, always remember the fact that God is the one who's in control. If you're in any type of position, if you're in ministry, if all those types of things, God has placed you there. And trust in him. And instead of being worried about others around you, what they're saying, what they're doing, embrace what it is that they can bring alongside and help you with. He, like I said, paranoia, jealousy, we don't know what it is, but he kills all of his brothers. Amazing. He's 32 years old when he becomes king. He's only going to reign for eight years. But in spite of all of this, and then doing evil in his sight, following after the ways of his, his wife, who's following after the ways of her parents, the false god, the Baals, and all of that. Verse 7, it says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. God, God does not wipe out the, 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 the tribe and, and take them away because he made a promise to David. Just as a reminder, and that's going to come into play here again in the next chapter, 
The promise to David is that through your seed, through your line, David, there will continually be a king until the Messiah comes and he will reign forever. And that, that line cannot be broken. And we see here that God will not break his word. God will, will never break his word, never break his covenant, never break his promises. And we're going to see later, it doesn't matter how hard the enemy tries to eliminate the promise. God oversees and, and makes sure that his word stays true and promises are true. We see that later. But guys, that's, those are, that's such an amazing truth. That the, 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 the promises that we have in the new covenant, we can know that we know that we know are absolutely 100% ours forever. Because God can never go back on his word. And no one can thwart that. Jesus said, I give you eternal life. No one can take you out of my hand. You are a born again believer here tonight. You are safe and secure in the hand of Jesus. And that promise is sure. He will never go back on that covenant. He bought it. He bought it. He ratified it with his own blood. And no one on the outside can affect that either. God sends warnings. Again, even in, in spite of all of this, he sends warnings. He's trying to even reach out. In those days, verse 8, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king over themselves. Then Jehoram crossed over with his commanders and all his chariots with him. And he arose by night and struck down the Edomites who were surrounding him and the commanders of the chariots. So he goes out to fight against the Edomites who have raised, raised up. They've been under under the, the control of Judah, paying taxes and tribute. And they revolt and say, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to set up our own king. He goes out to fight against them. Battle's not going well, actually gets completely surrounded. The, the, what it means here in this verse means that at night they were able to break away from that, but they never did conquer Edom. And even to the point again now, um, Ezra writing this many years later, it says that um, Edom revolted against Judah to this day. They, never, they were never able to, to conquer them again. Then Libna revolted at the same time against his rule. This is somebody within country. Edomites outside the country revolting. Even someone un, in, within Judah revolted against his rule. Notice, because he had forsaken the Lord God, the Lord, the God of his fathers. We're going to see, unfortunately, in verse 11, that everybody else follows after him. But here's a group of people that says, we are not going to follow after you. You are... We are going to continue to follow the Lord. They revolt. Verse 11, moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah. Here we see all of the work that his father and his grandfather had done, removing all of the idolatry. Here we see in one generation, in just in less than six years, all the high places are brought back. And he caused the inhabitants of Judah, Jerusalem, to play the harlot, and, to, and he led Judah astray. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father and the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot as the house of Ahab played the harlot, and you have also killed your brothers and your own family who were better than you, behold, 
the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity. And you will suffer severe sickness, a disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. I don't know what that is, but I don't want it. <laughs> um, one final warning comes to the king. One final warning comes to him. And it's interesting when we, when we look at this because Elijah, a couple of things about Elijah. First, he was a prophet in the north. We don't have any, any other record of him dealing with a king in the south. This is the only time he deals that it's recorded for us for the king in the south. Secondly, this is the only thing written by Elijah that we have. All of the other record that we have in Kings is spoken, nothing else written. And the third, and I think most fascinating, because I chased this down every direction I could today, because there appears to be several differences of opinion on it, but I can explain it to you later if you want. I won't take all the time tonight, but I, to me, there's no doubt scripturally to, to point this out. Elijah's already gone to heaven in the fiery chariot when the letter arrived. Years later. So Elijah, again, through the inspiration of God, the, as a prophet, got a word from God writing this letter to this king before he was king coming to him. And we know God's done that in other times in scripture, that prophecies coming, naming, naming people by name hundreds of years before they, before they were born. But here again, God, knowing that this is coming and describing the detail of it, you're going to kill your brothers who are better than you, but this is coming as a warning. Yes, it's carrying with it the punishment that is following, but I also have no doubt that if he would have fallen down and repented, God would have had a PS at the bottom. But this warning coming from the Lord, and we see that he even hardens his heart, even after all of this, it's going to wipe out your family. And because, again, of the severity of what has happened, his, his father and his grandfather had brought Judah back from idolatry to following the true and living God, Jehoshaphat. Here's this son. He'd seen this. He'd watched all of this take place. He'd watched his father even being rebuked by the prophet and, and repenting and bringing the, the country again to a deeper level of following after God. He watched all of that. But immediately he listens to his own sinful nature and his wife. And so God deals with him, obviously, very, very severely. Then the Lord stirred up, verse 16, against Jehoram, the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered uh, the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoaz, the youngest of his sons, who is also known as Ahaziah. We're going to see that as we get into the next chapter. The only two that are left are the wife that we all wish they'd have taken. She's, she's still there, and their son Ahaziah. They carry away all of his other sons and wives and family, and they're all killed. So after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness, and it came about in the course of time that at the end of two years that his bowels came out because of the sickness, and he died in great pain. 
and his people made no fire for him like the fire for his fathers. We mentioned this last time. That's not a fire for cremation. That is a fire that like a like an honorary type of thing or whatever, um, a remembrance memorial, if you would. They said they did not do that for him. Now it came about at the time in the course of time. Oh, I, already, I just did that. Verse 20. We don't need to read that again. Verse 20. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret. <laughs> How'd you like that on your tombstone? Here lies Jehoram. He died a gruesome death, and nobody regrets it. And they buried him in the city of David. Note, though, but not in the tombs of the king. He leads the country away. And because of all of the, and again, no one respects him. No one honors him. Just a sad, sad life here in a short reign, eight years. His son, however, verse 22, is going to reign even shorter. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men who came in with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, daughter of Ahab. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors. So not only getting counsel, again, getting counsel not only from his mother, but from the north, from the counselors that were counseling Ahab and Jezebel in the north. After the death of his father to his destruction. Verse 5, he also walked according to their counsel. He receives counsel from them, but instead of, again, turning away from that, he walked in it. And just a note with this, guys, we can't choose. We can't choose our family. We can't choose our parents. We can't choose our brothers and sisters, but we can choose our counselors. We can choose those who influence at work, more than likely, you can't choose your coworker, but you can choose those who influence you. There are a lot of things that we do not have control over about the people in our lives, but guys, we can choose those who influence, those whom we take counsel from. And we, we always, always, always need to take counsel from individuals who are godly people who will pray and search the word of God. Do not go to counsel for those that don't because they will lead you astray. But it's interesting back then, the counsel, that, that, those were really like only options. You could only go to the people. Not so anymore. And in the day and age that we live in, guys, it's so important who we receive in counsel, who we receive counsel from, who influences us. And I just get real, real straight to it. What are you watching on the internet? What are you watching on television? Where are you receiving counsel and influence 
today, especially, and I shouldn't say, it shouldn't even qualify this, including, not especially, because all of us can be susceptible to this, including young people. Who are the influencers in your life? There is so much junk out there that is that looks innocent enough on the surface. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves asking the question, how much trouble could I get in, really? I mean, how, how bad could it really be? And the question always, always, always again is, what is the right thing to do? It's interesting when it says that he walked according to their counsel, and it says his counselor was his mother, who count, whose counselor to do wickedly. His great-great-great-great-grandfather wrote, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, prosper. It's it's amazing. Again, we, we look at all of these stories, and we could probably all point to individual people that we know, that knew that they shouldn't go down that path that knew that they shouldn't get involved in something, yet they did anyway, and paying the consequences for that. As the word of God is true, blessed is the one who doesn't get caught up in any of that false counsel, worldly counsel, worldly input, but meditates on the word of God, follows the word of God, seeks counsel in others that do, You will always be blessed if you do that. Here again, we have another example of one who does not walk according to their counsel and went with Jehoram. Now, this, just a little bit here, just to let you know, I do have a cheat sheet that I wrote out earlier because this gets confusing because Jehoram, you say, went to Jehoram, isn't he dead? Yes, his dad Jehoram is dead, but his uncle Jehoram, the son of Ahab, his mom's brother, <laughs> that's the Jehoram we're talking about now, okay? So he had a, his dad Jehoram and uncle Jehoram. So now he's going to uncle Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to wage war against Haziel, king of Aram at Ramoth Gilead. But the Arameans wounded Joram, so Joram, Jehoram, same one. So they go into battle. Uncle Jehoram gets wounded. So he returns to be healed in Jezreel of his wounds, which they had inflicted on him at Ramah, when he found against when he fought against Heziel, king of Aram. Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, <laughs> Uncle Jehoram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. So he goes to see him, and this is going to play out if you want to read this, this, the account of it in Second Kings chapter nine. Almost the whole chapter kind of reveals this. Jehu is going to come and take, wipe, take care of both of them. Now, the destruction of Ahaziah was from God. God is the one, again, controlling this. God's the one who told Jehu to wipe out Ahab and his family. Ah, um, Ahaziah here just goes over there to make it convenient for Jehu to take care of them both at the same time. 
but it's from God. God is again speaking judgment against them for turning away and leading the nation away from, from God. It was from God in that he went to Joram. For when he came, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. Again, 2 Kings 9, if you want to read the full account of that. It came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah, and he slew them. He also sought Ahaziah, and they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria, and they brought him to Jehu, and put him to death, and buried him. For they said, he is the son of Jehoshaphat, grandson, who sought the Lord with all his heart. So since Jehoshaphat was a godly man, this is his grandson. We're not just going to leave him out here in the field. They actually had a burial for him. There was no one of the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, remember now the, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, she's still queen mother, if you would. Her husband died. Her son is the one now who just reigned a year. Now he is dead. When she finds out and saw that he was dead, she rose up and noticed destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. That included her grandchildren. She wipes out the entire family, including her own grandchildren. I mean, how, how crazy can this get? This is, again, this is the one, and she's doing this now so that she can retain power. Her husband is dead. Her son is dead. Now, in order to retain power herself so that she can be queen and rule, she wipes out everything. Now, the problem with that is that this is the end of the line of David. If she is successful in completely wiping out all of the descendants that she tried to do, God's promise ends. I, I don't believe that that was her intent. I, could, I think she could care less about the messianic line. Her intent was personal for power. But I can guarantee you that the demonic forces behind all of that, their intent was to wipe out the messianic line. Because if that happens, God loses. Satan wins. Praise God for chat, verse 11. I won't keep you waiting any longer, but, but I love that word sometimes. Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she would not put him to death. She's part of the, the household because she's a woman. She's not part of that that's being put to death. She is a daughter of Jehoram from a different wife, not the daughter of Athaliah, but she's, she's around there. She steals her nephew. He's a year old and hides him away. Her, her husband, Jehoiada, the priest, godly, godly man, and obviously here a godly woman, one of the, the few that are left that are still following after the Lord, he was hidden with them in the house of God six years 
Well, Athaliah reigned over the land. So she's, she thinks she's got this. She thinks she pulled it off. Six years she's reigning. And I wonder, I wonder what, how many were thinking. Because again, this is all secret. There's only, there's only three people that know what's going on. Jehoshabeth, Jehoiada, and the, the, the nurse. This is in secret everywhere else. I wonder how many were thinking, what happened to God's promise? The line of David is dead. He promised that he would have a king, that he would always have a king. I say that because I know there's times when we wonder that too. In those times when things just don't seem to be there, when God maybe doesn't seem to be answering. And we say, you know, we say, God, Jesus promised he would never leave me or forsake me. Why do I feel alone? Why is it that, that it, 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 it doesn't seem like that? Where is the promise? Where is that promise that he promised me? I, I'm not sensing it right now. Just because we might be in a spot like that again, guys, and I'll, as we'll move on and we're going to see, God's word is true. He's there. There is a reason why you feel the way that you do, and he might reveal that to you. It could be, it could be your own doing. It could be that he is desiring for you to grow in a certain area. He's, you know, God is moving. He is a sovereign God. He's a providential God. So his hands are moving, but always, always, always remember that his promises are true, regardless of what the enemy might try to tell you. His promises are true and they will show themselves as it does here. Chapter 23, now in the seventh year of Jehoiada, and I'm sorry, in the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself and took captains of hundreds. Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ishmael, the son of Johanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, Messiah, the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri, and they entered into a covenant with him. So now, the seventh year, he's starting to get all of these other priests and these other people together, and he's, he's entering into a covenant. I'm about to tell you something you're not going to believe, but you can't talk about it yet. They went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the father's households of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. Then all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God, and Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has spoken concerning the sons of David. God's promise is true. Here it is. He's still here. There's one left, and he's right here. Can you imagine the excitement? I mean, here's these, these Levitical priests the ones, again, who still probably most of them trying to follow after God, but now wondering, okay, where, was, where is the promise? Can we still believe his word? And there it's proven again. God is faithful. This is the thing which you shall do. He continues to lay out the plan. One third of you of the priests, the Levites who come in on the Sabbath shall be gatekeepers. One third shall be at the king's house and a third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the court to the house of the Lord for the Sabbath. But let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and the ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. And let all the people keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites will surround the king, each man with his weapon in his hand, and whoever enters the house, let him be killed. Thus be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So we're going to surround him. We're going to protect him. We're going to go everywhere he goes. We're going to protect him. If anybody comes in here that's not authorized, that's not a Levite, put him to death. 
So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. And each one of them took his men who were, um, who were to come in on the Sabbath with those who were to go out on the Sabbath. And Jehoiada, the priest, did not dismiss any of the divisions. So when they're changing shifts, those that are coming in and those that are going out, those that are going out stayed. So all of a sudden we got double duty everywhere. Jehoiada, the priest, gave to the captains of the hundreds the spears and the large and the small shields, which had been, in, which had been King David's, which were in the house of God. I can just feel the excitement building with all of this as they're putting on this armor and, and all of this stuff. This was King David's stuff. He stationed all the people, each man with his weapon in his hand from his right side in the house uh, of the house to the left side of the house by the altar and the house around the king. They don't know what the response is going to be. These are all the godly men, the Levites, the priests are getting all ready for this, but they don't know what the response is going to be. Is this going to be an all out battle and they're all willing to die for it if that's the case? Then they brought the king's son and put a crown on him and gave him the testimony and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him saying, long live the king. In 2 Kings, this chronicle, they, they all start cheering and clapping. When the word goes out, everybody, I mean, it's a huge uproar. Everybody is so excited. Except one, verse 12. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came into the house of the Lord to the people. She looked, and behold, the king was standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the captains and the trumpeters were beside the king and blowing their trumpets and shouting and praising the Lord. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets, the singers with their musical instruments leading the praise. Everybody is excited. Everybody is ecstatic, blowing trumpets, cheering, praising. Then Athaliah tore her clothes and said, treason, treason. The most treasonous person <laughs> in the entire catalog of what we've read is the one crying out treason. Isn't it amazing? I heard when I was listening to our, in, a, in a commentary, one said, that's like, the, that's like the, the child who murders his parents and then pleads for the court for being an orphan. Something along those lines, but anyway. Jehoiada, the priest, brought out the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them, bring her out between the ranks and whoever follows her, put to death with the sword. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they seized her. And when she arrived at the entrance of the horse gate the king's at, of the king's house, they put her to death there. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they would be the Lord's people. And all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down because they had built a house, a temple for Baal. They tore it down. They broke it to pieces, his altars, his images. They killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Moreover, Jehoiada placed the offices of the house of the Lord under the authority of the Levitical priests from David, for whom David had assigned over the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings for the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and singing according to the order of David. So Jehoiada continues to put all of these things into place. This godly man, I mean, remember, the king's seven years old, so he's, he, he's doing all of these things, no doubt, with the king alongside him, but he's kind of calling the shots as this is moving through here. 
He stationed the gatekeepers of the house of the Lord so that no one would enter who was not, who was in any way unclean. He took the captains of hundreds and nobles, the rulers of the people and all the people of the land and brought the king down from the house of the Lord and came through the upper gate to the king's house and they placed the king upon the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword. The Joash, seven years old, he's now king with this godly man, Jehoiada, as his counselor, the one who is, is instructing him. He has since he was a year old. Joash, seven years old when he became king, he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah from Beersheba. Joash did right what was right in the sight of the Lord. And this is important, all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. See that in a moment. Jehoiada took two wives for him. He became the father of sons and daughters. Over the course of the next several years, it came about that after this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. It's been 140 years, fallen into some disrepair, especially over after the, several, the last several years since Jehoshaphat has, has died. These last nine, 10 years, or nine, nine years, three, so 12 years, has fallen into disrepair for sure because the, the, the Baal worship and everything that's going on. So he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah, collect money from all Israel and repair the house of of your God annually. And you shall do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. He said, go out, start collecting this tax, use that money to repair the temple. They seem to apparently have just gotten busy with their Levitical duties instead of doing that. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest and said to him, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem, the levy fixed by Moses, the servants of the Lord on the congregation of Israel and the tent of testimony for the sons of the wicked Athaliah had broken into the house of God and even used the holy things of the house of the Lord for the Baal. So the king repaired or commanded that they, they make a chest and set it outside by the gate of the house of the Lord. They made a proclamation in Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of God on Israel in the wilderness. All of the officers and all of the people rejoiced and brought in their levies and dropped them into the chest until they had finished. So once they made it available, they weren't going around collecting it. They said, when you come to the temple, here's, here's, the, here's the offering box, if you would, put that in. And it tells that they, they rejoiced in doing that. They loved the idea of being able to give this. First of all, it was commanded, this levy that they give, this tax. They were happy to do that. But also that the joy that is going throughout the, the country now, that the temple is being re, refurnished and, and, and fixed up and, and kept up. And, and things are right. Things are right finally again. Came about whenever the chest was brought into the king's officer by the Levites. And when they saw there was much money, then the king's scribe and the chief priest and the officers would come, empty the chest, take it, return it to its place. They did this daily and collected much money. The king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work for the service of the house of the Lord. They hired masons, carpenters to restore the house of the Lord. They also worked in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So the workmen labored and the repair and the work progressed in their hands. They restored the house of God according to its specifications and strengthened it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money. They even came in under budget. They brought the money before the king 
in Jehoiada and it made it into utensils for the house of the Lord, utensils for the service of the burnt offerings, pans and utensils of gold and silver. They offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Again, I just repeat this. This is a great time of blessing. There, it tells us that there's peace in the land, the, the rejoicing. Everybody's happy. They're given, given to the work and everything is going smoothly. Again, all the days of Jehoiada. Now, when Jehoiada reached the ripe old age, a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. They buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. This godly man, again, risking his own life by, by taking the, the, the son, Joash, taking the king at, at a year old, hiding him, doing this whole coup attempt that was there and doing all that, taking his own life in his hands because he loved the living God. He served the living God. And then he raises this, this young man up in the ways of the Lord, teaching him all of these things, showing him all of these things. And he sees all of the, all of the blessing, all of the every, everything that is going on. This young man now, though, his mentor, the one who has been the influence in his life, dies. And I told you back in, in verse 11, I love the but there. I don't like the but in verse 17. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Again, instead of listening to the instruction and the influence and the counsel now of Jehoiada, this man who had raised him up this whole time, he quickly turns and listens to these ungodly people that come and will turn him away. And there's a huge, huge lesson in that, that again, I don't think anybody's too old, but especially, especially to, to younger people. The, it is so important that as parents, as, as grandparents that, that we pour into and that we are a godly example to those that are our, our children and our grandchildren, but we need to make sure that they make a personal decision to follow the Lord Jesus. It has to be their personal choice because there's going to be a day when we're not around anymore. And if they are living on our faith, that's not going to last. The the, the enemy is just waiting, just lurking. It, I find it interesting that these scoundrels didn't come to him when Jehoiada was still alive. But as soon as he was dead, they came. And you young people here listening, ever watching this, make sure it is your faith. Make sure that you make it your faith, that Jesus is your Lord. That almighty God is your God because God only has children. He does not have grandchildren. You cannot be saved based on your parents or your grandparents' faith. It has to be your faith. He has to be your Lord. He listens to them. After all, all these years, he listens to them. They, notice this, verse 18, they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. They went out. It wasn't just that they took a little deviation. 
They went out and, and put the Asherah poles back up. They went out and set up the high places again. So the wrath of God came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this, their guilt. Yet, here again, the faithfulness of God, the long suffering of God, yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. And again, we think it's bad already. It gets worse. Verse 20, then the spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he, that, that, and he stood above the people and said to them, that, now again, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of the man who raised Joash from one year old, just died. His son comes and says, thus God has said, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord and he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Joash, instead of hearing that rebuke and falling back on the, those words that he knew growing up, and here's his son coming in and bringing that rebuke, instead of repenting, he has the son of his godly mentor stoned to death. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. Now it happened at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, yet the Lord delivered a very great army of the Israelites, the, the tribes of Judah, into their hands because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When he had departed from him, they left him for he was sick. He was wounded in the battle. His own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest, or the son of Jehoiada the priest, and murdered him on his bed. So Joash wounded, but his own servants come and kill him. So he died and they buried him in the city of David. But note, they did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. They buried Jehoiada in the tomb of the kings because he was such a godly man. But they did not with Joash. Now those who conspired against him, Zadab, the son of Shimeath, the Ammonite, the Ammonitus, and Jehoshabad, the, the Shemite, the Moabite, as to, the sons, as to his sons and the many oracles against him and the rebuilding of the house of God, behold, they are written in the treatise of the book of the kings. Then Amaziah, the son, his son, became king in his place. Really sad ending. <laughs> and like I said, it's, it's kind of, a, it's really a bummer to, to, to finish there. We need to. However, I go back to, <laughs> I go back to where we kind of started with Nehemiah. And thinking it sounds kind of harsh, slapping around, pulling your hair, knucklehead, would you listen? But it sure beats the alternative, doesn't it? And I say that to if, if tonight, through God's word, Holy Spirit convicting, maybe some areas of compromise in your life, some areas that you've said, well, what's the worst that could happen? Repent, turn from that, 
what's the right thing to do? God sends his word. God sends his, his prophet. God, if that is you and you're feeling that conviction, God's sending his word to you tonight. You have a choice. You can push it aside. You can dismiss it as Joash did and as the others did. But then you only have yourself to blame for the consequences that come. Or you can repent. You could say, God, forgive me. And he is quick. The Bible says, if we, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here tonight and you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, you have, you're here and, you, and you're, you've been kind of going right along the, the coattails of somebody else's faith, your parents, your grandparents, a friend, a spouse. But you know that you've never made that decision. You've never done that. You are, your eternity is in the balance here. But you're also this close to being completely led astray. But you can change that tonight by repenting yourself, confessing your sin, and, and accepting the forgiveness that, that is yours in Jesus. But you have to make that your decision. You have to make that your faith. Make him your Lord in faith. And for the rest of us, again, valuable lesson. Compromise. It should never cross the question and say, okay, well, it's just, it's just a little one. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Always, what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing? What does God's word tell me to do? And if you're curious, if you're wondering, if you're, if you're at a crossroads and you, you, you have a decision and, and you're just not getting that answer and, and there, there could be some other, get some godly counsel. Don't go to the internet. Don't go to Dr. Phil or Oprah. Get some godly counsel. Pray together. Let's pray now. Lord, thank you. Even though this is a difficult section to read because it's like watching that just a slow-moving horror film that we're just like screaming no. Yet it's there for us, Lord, and it's there for our learning. Lord, I pray that we would learn. These are lessons that we do not have to learn the hard way. We can, we can take from your word. You've given it to us for that reason. For our instruction. If you're here tonight and you, there is an area of compromise in your life, or maybe many. Repentance means to turn. To turn away from that. Turn away from that path, those areas of compromise, and turn back to the Lord Jesus. It's, matter, it's simply a matter of making that decision, confessing your sin, repenting, turning back to Jesus right now, turning back to the Lord, following after him, turning away from the sin. Confess your sin before him. You've never made Jesus Lord of your life. That is due. Just go before him in your heart right now. Hey, God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I, I realize that I've never made this decision myself. I have never taken this step myself. I've, I've been relying on my parents' faith or my grandparents' faith or my spouse's faith. But today, Lord Jesus, I realize I need to do this myself. So Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I today make this proclamation. I want you to be Lord of my life. Come into my life. Come into my heart. You take over from now on. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you that your promises are true, and we know that you will never go back on your word, and no one can take us out of your hand.
stand on that. Jesus, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.